Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the LSE for this evening's event. Uh, my name is Jonathan Hopkin. I'm a professor of comparative politics in the government department and in the European Institute here. Um, and I'm very pleased to present this panel discussion on money in politics based on an analysis that, that we've been doing on donations to political parties in, in the UK. And I'm joined by some great colleagues who've been working on this project and related projects. So uh, Kate Alexander-Shaw over on the far left, don't know if we should read anything into that, is research officer in the European Institute, former PhD student in the government department, specialized in British and comparative political economy, uh, has a particular interest in the politics of economic ideas. Next to her is Alberto Parmigiani, who's a PhD candidate in the government department here at LC2, who is researching the interplay between economic inequality and political influence in Western democracies and has been doing some of the research on uh, a project I've been running here on donations. Uh, Stuart Wilts Heeg is Professor of Politics at the University of Liverpool. And he frequently provides uh, UK political commentary and analysis for newspapers and broadcasters regionally, nationally, and internationally, and has published widely on British politics and worked extensively on party political funding in the UK. So what we're going to do here is uh, present some findings of a, a research project on party donations in the UK and try and broaden that out into a, a wider discussion on the impact of money in politics and the implications of some of the dynamics of how political funding works in the UK context. So just to, if, in case you're interested in tweeting about this event, there is a hashtag which is LSE UK economy. So if you want to tweet about what you're hearing, you can use that hashtag to help people find what you have to say. The event is also being recorded, so there will be a podcast made available after the event. Uh, when we've finished speaking, we will each take a turn up here to give you a few minutes of thoughts on this, and then we will have a Q&A discussion. Uh, so, you know, if you're interested in asking questions, please you know, have a think about what you want to ask the panel and, you know, we will uh, hopefully have time for, for people's questions. Right, so let's see if I can pull up my slides. Okay, and sorry, I should welcome those of us joining online as well. And also for those of you on Zoom, please use the chat function to get questions together for the debate afterwards. Okay, so a few uh, opening thoughts from me about money and politics and the particular British case. Um, so, my punchy, funny headline is, is disappearing behind this. Maybe uh, some of you are too young to have uh, watched Leslie Nielsen's films. Uh, this is a famous scene from Naked Gun of the policeman saying, nothing to see here, please disperse as uh, mayhem breaks, breaks loose uh, behind. So, is there really anything that we should be worrying about when it comes to the role of money in British politics? Uh, is there an issue? Is there a, a there there? Well, I, you know, it didn't take me very long to pull together a bunch of recent headlines relating to issues of money seen to be potentially having some kind of uh, not entirely healthy influence in uh, British politics. So we've had a few cases 
of uh, controversies around some of the donations made to the Conservative Party by treasurers. So at least two headlines were relating to uh, the Tory party treasurers making large donations to the party and potentially being rewarded afterwards by a peerage. Um, we have also, um, as hit the headlines recently, we have the issue of uh, Nadine Zahawi's uh, tax affairs, which are not strictly related to donations to the political party, although I guess um, some people might be uh, in the Conservative Party might be wondering if he has all this wherewithal, perhaps some of it could have been used for, to the party's benefit. And then, of course, uh, Boris Johnson's £800,000 loan, apparently arranged with the help of somebody who later became chairman of the BBC. Um, so this is just from more or less this week <laughs> uh, and, and recent weeks. So, you know, we picked a good time for organizing this event. Um, there's, there's quite a lot going on that, that revolves around issues of, you know, what is the role of money in politics? What kind of influence can money buy in politics? Are our politicians, do they have clean hands when it comes to uh, the way they fund their lifestyles or the way in which they raise money for the party political campaigns? And um, obviously a lot of these headlines are relating to the Conservative Party. Uh, naturally enough, the party in power tends to be a magnet for these kind of controversies. So just for the sake of political balance, but also to give you a, a fairer picture, um, there are also issues relating to Labour too, of course. Um, interestingly, some of them are to do with the same kind of story of wealthy people uh, giving money to the party, potentially in the hope that, that they might be able to shape policy in one way or another in a direction they would like. There are also a few interesting stories. I mean, one of them up there was, uh, this is from a Sky, the Sky News page, about uh, Labour accepting money from a major donor who'd also supported the Just Stop Oil campaign, which is kind of interesting. It's perhaps not the usual story of wealthy people perhaps wanting to buy some kind of advantage for themselves, but it's still the same issue of whether people who make major donations should be able to shape policy or whether they will end up shaping the policies that parties follow. There are also a few interesting stories uh, I dug out about how the terrain is shifting in terms of political donations. Um, if you look at the opinion polls um, and people who make political donations probably do, then you can see that the tide is shifting away from the Conservative Party. It's looking quite grim for them. Uh, and I think there's broad expectation that the next government will probably be led by Labour and it makes sense that the tide in terms of political donations is shifting in that direction too. So although, you know, we will be hearing a bit about how the Conservative Party in particular seems to be exposed to some uh, influence from wealthy uh, people, um, the Labour Party too, especially when it's near to political power, is subject to some of the same dynamics. So uh, why does this all matter? Why should we worry about wealthy people giving money to politicians and political parties? Uh, and the main reason uh, this matters is because, of course, in a democracy, we would like to think that elections are the main way in which the people get to provide instructions, if you like, or suggestions as to how they should be governed. Who governs us, so the selection of the people who run the government, but also what kind of policies they follow. Um, so whatever theory, and you know, democratic theory is a very complex area and there are lots of different theories of democracy which have different implications for what we think about the, the role of elections is, but whichever 
theory you're working with, they all point to the direction of voting being the key way in which we as citizens are able to exercise some kind of influence over what governments do. But the big problem is that politics is not free. It's made to appear so, right? Uh, what we, we don't see cash changing hands, politicians, unlike a, a lot of uh, um, uh, parts of society where it's quite acceptable for you to offer money to somebody in exchange for some kind of service. In politics, this is a kind of taboo, right? And for good reason. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not a world of financial transactions, or at least shouldn't be. But the problem is that politicians need money still, right? They need money. And what's more, most of us will probably, especially in a place like LSE, it's a more motiv one of the more motivated kinds of uh, sectors of the population here, probably you're all likely to go and vote. Um, but how many of you actually give money to political causes? My guess is, I don't know, let's have a show of hands. Who's ever made a political donation? Okay, that's quite impressive. Definitely still a minority, uh, and almost certainly vastly un, uh, unrepresentative of the population at large. Okay, we're at the London School of Economics and Political Science. So if this kind of crowd was not giving money to politics, then they would have uh, very little, um, very little wherewithal. So um, politics isn't free. Politicians need money, but at the same time, most of us are not prepared to give money to politicians. And that means that the money has to come from somewhere. If you're going to actually get yourself elected, organize a political party, uh, and, and run a political party, you're going to need money to do that. So where's that money going to come from? Well, uh, obviously, people who have a lot of money have more scope to actually use that money to buy political influence. They may do it for all kinds of good public regarding reasons, but they may also do it for reasons uh, of trying to gain advantages for themselves. Whichever of those it is, the fact is that you know, wealthy donors or groups of donors or organizations, corporations, interest groups, and so on, can use their firepower, the fact that they have more money available than individual citizens mostly do, to persuade politicians to adopt policies tailored to their own preferences. So this means that because the money is important, because you can't succeed in politics without money, then politicians are likely to listen to donors rather more than they listen to the typical individual voter, which leads to a, a basic inequality of representation. People who make large donations are going to listen to more than the rest of us. They, they are over-representative, uh, rep and, and they may, it may just be that their views are a bit different from the rest of us and their views hold more sway, but it also can be that they can persuade politicians to do things that are not in the interests of broader society, but are in their private interests. So in the US, obviously, uh, uh, we have plenty of examples of money talking in politics. And in the United States, it's interesting that actually it's very transparent how money shapes politics. Uh, and there's a lot of academic work on the overbearing influence of wealthy interests funding political campaigns. And it's also well established, there's a lot of research in, on how in America, politicians are much more likely to... Uh, to um, to represent the interests of higher income groups rather than lower income groups. And if you see there, this tweet from Robert Reich, who actually was a member of the Clinton administration back in the 90s, pointing out that in 2020, uh, billionaires spent $1.2 billion on uh, contributions to candidates in elections. Uh, so that suggests that there can be a problem. Do we have a problem on, on the same scale in, in Britain? Well, this is what, uh, 
these projects are trying to find out. So uh, we won some funding from the British Academy and the Leverhulme Trust to find out uh, a little bit more about who donates money to British political parties exploiting this big data set that, um, be, that um, the Electoral Commission, which about which more in a moment, uh, has been collecting since 2001. Um, and so we have a record of, in theory, all of the donations made to political parties in Britain over that uh, couple of decades. And um, we'll now be hearing uh, from other members of the panel on exactly what uh, that data tells us. So uh, over to Alberto, yeah. Thanks a lot, Jonathan, for the introduction. And thanks to all of you for being here and the people that are also attending uh, online. So I will be presenting uh, what we have done regarding the, the grant that Jonathan mentions. Uh, and so let me start with what basically the data says, right? So uh, political finance have been regulated in the United Kingdom uh, since quite recently. So the Electoral Commission was founded in 2000 and has recorded uh, donations uh, since 2001. Uh, the permissible donors are the following, right? Individuals, companies, trade unions, and other types of societies, partnerships, or associations that carry on business in the UK. And for this list of permissible donors, there is no limits. And donations under 500 pounds are not necessarily reported. So this is basically the rule of the game, right? And having said that, between 2001 and 2021, in the data set, there are more than 63,000 donations, with the average donation being around 18,000 pounds, but half of the donation are actually smaller than uh, 2,700 pounds. And you know, like you probably have read a lot about, you know, the, these very big donations. Uh, the biggest donation is, uh, uh, you know, 8 million. If you Google it, you can easily uh, know who, who is the donor of that of that donations. And then upon that, like the Electoral Commission provides substantial funding to opposition parties and some sort of minimal funding to each party to develop their manifesto. So if we look you know, at the uh, four main parties, this is how, uh, how the data looks like. Uh, so you see clearly, you know, the conservative and labor parties are the biggest parties also in terms of the donations they collected. And you see, you know, clear spikes in election years, especially uh, 2017 and 2019 for, for the Conservative Party. So as Jonathan said, th these are donations to political parties. So contrary to the United States, which is my main subject of study in the PhD, uh, where, you know, like, every donor can donate directly to one candidate. In the United Kingdom, donor can only donate to the uh, party. And they can either donate to the central party office or to the local branches of, of the parties. Uh, but as you can see from this graph, the majority of donations actually go to the central party offices, especially for the two main parties that as, as we have seen are also the biggest parties in terms of, of the funding they collect. 
So, you know, the two lines at the top means that basically around 90% of donations of uh, uh, Labour and Conservative Party go to the central office, while instead, uh, you know, the, the Liberal Democrats and the UKIP, especially in the first half of the time period, have more kind of regional branches receiving, receiving money. This also means that in terms of data analysis, we could not, you know, analyze that much the recipients of donations. So what we have focused on in this project is, uh, you know, the donors themselves. Um, we have done mainly four things. Uh, the first one is that we have created IDs. So uh, uh, for all indiv donors, individual and company donors, especially for individual donors. And this seems, uh, you know, trivial, but it's not because the electoral commission does not provide uh, IDs. And this is the case because every donor can simply write their name. And that means that, you know, the same person can have many different names because it's common to have, you know, first, middle and last names, sometimes just initials. And then you have many <clears throat> donors that have titles, Lord, Sir, and so on and so forth. So, you know, like the same donors might have up to, you know, 15 different spellings of the name. So we have created this idea and we plan to release the database you know, in the near future. I think this could be a good public good for researchers and, and the public as well. <laughs> the second thing we have done is that we have, uh, you know, like, and I'm going to show you this, we have created share of donations by category of donors for each party. And uh, I, I will show you this for Labour and Conservative Party. Then the third thing is that we have coded the sectors of all donating companies. And so analyze basically uh, their donations for each sector. And finally, we have coded the kind of biggest donations for individual donors, uh, whether they work in companies. They might work, you know, uh, with an active role in a company, or they might work simply, you know, sitting in executive committees of the companies. Uh, and we have coded this with the idea of develop a network analysis of big donors that work in companies that also donate. So I will give you some very preliminary findings of this at the end. So uh, this is, you know, like a uh, probably not very novel finding. So this graph basically shows us that the Labour Party mainly receives money from trade unions, and it's been uh, the case uh, for the entire period. So in the second half of the period, the Labour Party has been in the opposition, right? And so you see that there is uh, an increase in the public money. Uh, as I said at the beginning, opposition parties receive uh, more money. Uh, <clears throat> from the electoral commission as public funds. And so we see that individuals also uh, contribute to the Labour Party and they uh, sum up to around one third of, uh, of the total donations in the first half of the, of the period and then, then the share declines in the second one. But crucially, what I want to underline here is the red line, right? So the, the company share, so the share of donation that comes from companies is very small, uh, while instead for the um, conservatives, this is not the case. So the conservative party has a completely different um, 
you know, like structure of, of donation in terms of the category of donors. Uh, so you, you see kind of the opposite shape of the public uh, money. So in the first half of the period, the Conservative Party was in the position, so it has more public money. But except for this, you see a clear uprising trend for the individual share and a sort of constant trend for the companies. And uh, basically, there is no uh, union funding, obviously, from for the Conservative Party. Okay, and then, as I said, we've coded all uh, company donations in terms of their sector. And again, this is probably not a very novel finding. It's basically, each all sectors donate mostly to the Conservative Party. Uh, I would say more more than three fourths of uh, each sector's donations go to the uh, Conservative Party with the exception of the kind of uh, education, social works, uh, no, sorry, social works, arts and other service activities that uh, mostly donate to liberal Democrats and you know, also donates uh, a smaller chunk to, to the Labour Party. Okay, so uh, to conclude, again, this is a very preliminary findings of the network analysis also in a very colloquial terms. Uh, so if we define a cluster as a group of at least one individual donor that is related to at least one company donors, namely this individual donor works actively uh, in the company or sits in the executive committee of the company, <clears throat> uh, this is this is a cluster, right? It could be more than one, right? So a cluster can be just one donor, one company, or many more. So in the database, actually, there is at least one individual donor that is related to six companies that also donates, and there is a company that is related to 26 individual donors. So there are big and small clusters. So if we consider all clusters, 16% of all the money comes from some sort of clusters of individual company donors. If we consider all parties, if we break down to for each party, more than 30% of money that comes from you know, small or big clusters, any type of clusters, um, so, sorry, 30% of all money collected by the conservatives comes from uh, one sort of clusters of donors. And uh, this is not the case for labor and liberal Democrats. So the, the, the share of money that comes from uh, individuals and companies connected between them is way smaller. And this is not surprising because we have seen that com like company donations are a big chunk of uh, the, the entire share of money collected by the Conservative Party. But even if we look only uh, in the individual monies. So like almost one fifth of all money donated from individuals to the Conservative Party comes from individuals that are in at least one cluster. So this is just to say that, you know, there seems to be some, you know, like clusters of people and companies that donate to politics in general, and especially to the Conservative Party. This is, I think, all I had to say. I just want to acknowledge that much of this work has been done by Max Kniefer, who was a PhD student in the department as well as now 
at Harvard as a post postdoctoral fellow. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the event. Good evening. Um, thanks for the invitation to uh, come back to my alma mater. Um, it's changed a bit in the last 30 years, but uh, all, all for the better, I'm sure. Um, this is not part of the project that we just heard about. It's a kind of offshoot of it. Um, so I've been working with Jonathan, sort of connecting up some of the stuff they've been doing with some stuff I did 10 years ago for an organization called Democratic Audit. Um, so I tried to update this a bit. And just seemed like a good opportunity as well to look back on two decades of something called the uh, Political Parties, Elections and Referendums Act 2000, um, which introduced significant regulations, as we heard, to party funding. Um, and we can start to think about the impact of that, what difference it's made. So um, I've said here, my subtitle is how the Conservatives learned to stop worrying about transparency and love Labour's reforms. And you might be able to work out where I've pinched that formulation from. Um, so we heard a bit about um, why political parties need money and political parties are of course essential to democracy and so on so um, it's very important that parties are funded to do that work. Um, there are obviously issues that arise when party finance gets into murky territory and there's a number of concerns we might have particularly when money comes from private sources. Um, so a lot of European countries, they have models of state funding. There's pros and cons with that. We do have some state funding, as we've heard, but it's not predominantly state funding model. So as Jonathan's outlined, obviously, um, where we've got very wealthy or vested interests funding political parties, they might seek to influence policy. They might seek to influence party leadership even. I'll talk about what's on the slide in a moment. Um, there are dangers, obviously, of corruption, of breaches of integrity, exchanges of money for honours, potentially. Um, doesn't happen, of course. It's all coincidental. Um, happened under Lloyd George, we know that. Um, um, obviously, uh, fears that uh, money might change hands in order to win government contracts and so on. And also, we might be concerned with private finance, you know, given, obviously, the concentrations of money among the wealthy, um, that we would end up with parties which represent those interests um, being um, obviously much wealthier than the others. Um, now, um, Nadine Dorries, who's on the screen here, is from Liverpool. Uh, she's one of um, several uh, Conservative MPs who originally come from Liverpool. Um, she doesn't represent a Liverpool seat, funnily enough, as a Conservative MP. Um, now, the thing about Nadine is um, she often just says what's in her head, right? So when Boris Johnson was in trouble and she wanted to defend him and to stop this challenge to him being a leader, she went on TV, I think, it was Sky News and she literally said these words the donors have spoken I didn't just write that on that those are her words um, and she said Conservative Party donors have said they aren't going to support the party if the PM is removed Conservative MPs in marginal seats need to hear that and understand what they are doing 
18 million pounds those donors have donated over recent time. And she goes on, that's not the end of it. I mean, it goes on from there. Um, so it's, it's actually quite amazing to have somebody say that on live television, um, because it's what a lot of us think is going on in politics, but, but there it is, absolutely amazing. Um, so I think we should, we should have these concerns and occasionally they come out. In terms of level playing field, um, this is from the work I did back in um, 2010 with Democratic Audit. Um, this is um, obviously illustrating that there isn't uh, a level playing field. Um, so these pie charts that show sources of party income, the point about this is that they're adjusted to the size of the money they have. So the Conservatives is very large, Labour's very large, um, Liberal Democrats much smaller and the Greens absolutely tiny. Um, and the kind of light blue part of those pie charts shows the money from donations. Um, so you can see for all of the parties, donations are incredibly important. Um, we could argue about the Labour one because the, um, the red part, that's affiliations, et cetera, from trade unions. And some people want to call that donations as well. Um, there's a debate about that. So if you put that in as donations too, then you know, clearly donations are critically important to party income. There's no, no getting away from it. So if we're concerned about private funding and we're concerned about its effect on democratic politics, well, what would we do about it? What are the solutions? Uh, the Victorians had one answer that was to limit spending and to limit spending by candidates in constituencies. And that's all we did for a very long time. Yeah, very tight limits on what candidates can spend in constituencies. Eventually it became clear that political parties were spending a lot of money at election time. Post-war period, the kind of view was, well, labor and capital factors of production they sort of balance each other out in the forms of the political parties it's kind of okay the companies fund the conservatives the trade unions fund uh, labor it all balances out by the 1990s it was clear that that was not um not as neat a solution as people thought um so under new labor we got reforms um, so the political parties, elections and referendum act. Um, this extended the principles of the Victorian legislation from 1883 um, to put a cap on spending, but spending by parties in addition to the spending by candidates. So it's a national spending limit for parties. It also adopted the principle that sunshine is the best disinfectant. So if, if we declare the donations, if it's clear who is donating, it will clean up politics. That was the idea. Um, so we've had these limits then on election spending, we've had these donation registers since 2000. Um, so one of the reasons we had those limits was that um, general election spending was going up, and the blue part of, um, this goes up to 2005, it's in 2005 prices, starting in 1945. Um, by 1997, elections were getting really expensive, really, really expensive. And the blue part of the, of the bar each time is the spending by parties. So if you go back to 1945, most of the spending was by candidates in constituencies. Uh, by the 1990s, there's this massive party uh, spending in general elections. So part of the reason for the reforms was to try to contain that. And it was hoped by... Um, uh, only allowing the parties to spend a certain amount that would reduce the need for big money, it would cut the role of big money in politics. Um, there was also a ban on foreign donations, and we get the registers, um, etc, of donations, which are a great um, information source, uh, as we've heard. Um, so, um, the Political Parties, Elections and Referendum Act um, 2000, it came in with cross-party consensus. Um, largely because 
neither of the two main parties wanted to spend so much on general elections, having nearly bankrupted themselves in 97. Um, Conservatives were in trouble financially, uh, losing more and more money from company donations. And at that time, they were funded quite heavily by um, public companies, so companies on the stock exchange. That was drying up and they were turning to other sources, but that was causing a lot of controversy. Um, So the the registers then have given us this great source, um, but to touch on a few problems with using them. um, One issue is that we get the, what I call the Chris Rea problem. So journalists do this kind of thing. Um, So when we try and work out who's funding political parties, we get headlines like this in a telegraph. Um, Chris Rea among high profile donors to conservative party. David Cameron has won financial support of high profile donors, including Chris Rea, the rock star, says Rhea, whose hits include The Road to Hell and Driving Home. It's the wrong Chris Rhea. It was all over the media. It's not him. It's this Chris Rhea, the industrialist. Uh, um, A little known Northern Irish businessman. Yeah, so he's so little known, everybody confuses him with a rock star. Um, So when we go through these registers and there's huge numbers of entries, we've got to sift out all of these ones who we think are somebody, but they're actually somebody else. Um, We've also heard about this problem. There's no standardization of names or donor identities. So these are just donations over 250,000 made by Michael Farmer who uh, works in hedge funds. Um, So he's actually made 78 donations to the Conservatives from 2001 to 22. His name appears in five different variations. 25 different donor IDs have been applied to his donations. It's the same person, but you have to trawl through and work out that these are all the same person. Um, And what happens eventually, and it's pure coincidence, of course, is at some point, somebody's a mister, they suddenly become a lord, as happens with Michael (laughs) Palmer, or they become a sir, and then maybe a sir and then a lord. Um, So you've got to work out they're all the same person, and it takes a long time. But when we start to do this, we start to find some really, really interesting things in the data. Um, So, um, as I said, the Conservatives have done okay under this system, even though it's brought under a Labour government. The Conservatives have learned to live with it. Um, So if we look at spending on UK general elections, um, 2001 to 2019, the red bar is Labour, the blue bar is Conservative, pretty evenly matched 2001, 2005, but from 2010 onwards, the Conservatives are outspending Labour quite comfortably in general elections. So the Conservatives have found a way to work with this, and they found a way in particular to adapt to the legislation to find new donors, um, to bring in uh, uh, donors from new sources, and to reassure those donors really that that won't necessarily be clear who they are and uh, who they're donating to. They could get confused with rock stars, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So um, when we drill down, it does start to uh, get quite interesting. Um, So for the Conservatives in particular, what's happened over time is that the big corporate donations from the blue chip companies, they've gone, they've completely gone. And personal donations from individuals, they've very much taken over. So they're absolutely key. Um, Big donations are absolutely critical. So I'm a big fan of what are called Pareto 80-20 rules. Um, Things always in the ratio of 80 to 20. So 80% of donation income to the Conservatives comes from 20% of the donations. Donations of 250,000 or more are 34% of all donation income. And of those donations over 250,000 or more, 
58% of them come from individuals. So I'm going to say, if you're giving more than 250,000 to a political party, I think you're probably rich, especially, <laughs> especially if you're doing it regularly, um, which some people are. Um, we can trace, as we've heard, some of the sectors, um, and it's even more interesting when you look at the individuals, not just the companies. Um, so particularly under Cameron's leadership, and thereafter, more and more money coming from finance, particularly things like hedge funds, private equity, quite a lot from property development, but not from companies big time, um, but from the individuals who've accumulated wealth in those sectors. Um, the, uh, the final thing, and this is this slide here, is a lot of those donations turn out to be linked. Um, and we've heard a little bit about that already. Um, so once you start to find out who these people really are, and with lots of manual searching and going through registers of companies house, who's on the directors of what boards and just even internet searches about who's married to who and so on, which I have done. Um, you can start to put together donor groups. Now these are fascinating. So we start to find that there are individuals connected to other individuals through business, through family, who own companies and they're usually private limited companies. So they own it. They don't have shareholders to go to, to ask for donations. They make the decisions themselves and we can start to connect these people up. Um, so from 2001 to 22, these are the top 10 donor groups. Now, interestingly, the biggest one is the UK state. Um, so that's intriguing. There's more state money than we often think. Um, but the second one is the Bamford family. This is the people who make JCBs, yeah? Privately owned company. And look at all those names that you have to put together. Mark Banford, Anthony Banford, George Banford, Joseph Banford, JCP Services, JCP Excellent, and so it goes on. And when you add all of those together, it comes to 16 million pounds. And it's a lot more money than it looked when they were disaggregated. Um, and there'll be some names there you recognize like uh, Michael Ashcroft, uh, Laidlaw, um, Robert Edmondson, et cetera, et cetera. Same pattern, linked sources of money, which when you put them together, shows the very narrow base which the Conservatives are drawing their money from. Um, I could say more about donor churn, which is interesting because the donors aren't static through this period, they change. Um, the donors now to the Conservatives are quite different to 20 years ago. Um, but I'll just end by saying these reforms in 2000, political parties, elections, referendum act, um, they were supposed to cut the reliance on big donations in British politics. It hasn't worked. It clearly hasn't worked. We still have a big donor issue. We still have some of the problems of party finance, which I've referred to. Um, but it's also clear that the Conservatives have adapted well to Labour's reforms. They are doing well under this system. Um, so if you think, the things I said at the start and the others have said are issues in party finance, um, concerns about democracy, integrity, potential corruption and so on. If you think those are things we should pay attention to, we still need to pay attention to them. They're not fixed yet. So we need to look at reform again. Thanks very much. Okay, um, I'm going to try and supplement what my colleagues have said with a bit of a broader perspective. Um, so we've heard ecosystem of donations in British politics now. So what I want to try and add to that is just step back for a moment and think of this in terms of systems, because of course it's quite easy in, in particularly media coverage of these topics to get pulled into stories about individuals, some of them quite eye-catching individuals, eye-catching amounts of money very often, but those individuals aren't operating in a vacuum. There's a sort of set of systems um, in Britain's politics and in our political economy that can incentivize 
or um, disincentivize certain kinds of political behavior. So I'm going to try and put things in that broader context a little bit now. But first, stepping back for a moment, if we go back to 2016, uh, Jonathan Hopkins and I authored a paper about how Britain had ended up with what we called a winner-take-all economy, that is one in which top incomes had rocketed away from the rest and a certain part of society was doing very well and inequality was widening. Um, and we wanted to try and explain that. And we took that phrase winner-take-all politics from uh, Hacker and Pearson's book in the United States where they had told a very similar story about burgeoning inequality and, and rocketing top incomes. And a big part of their explanation for that, that picture had been what they called organized combat, the influence of big money in politics and the ability of the very richest and big corporations in particular to pursue their interests through politics and to secure favorable policy over several decades that had created that income distribution and had ended up with that result. Um, and we wanted to think about how far that explanation worked for Britain. And at the time we felt that actually it didn't translate very easily. Um, British politics and the kind of money you see in British politics is of a completely different order to that in the States. Um, and so it wasn't obvious to us that the same thing was going on, that this was all a story of corporate lobbying and very large donations having very large impacts on the policy process. What we found evidence for at that time was something a bit more subtle in which um, in particular the, the financial sector in the city of London, in which many of the high earners driving Britain's inequality trends were employed, um, the City of London's influence came not necessarily from direct lobbying and overt organized combat in the kind of American sense, but through a combination of slightly more subtle interactions with government through what we call structural power on the one hand, which is the sense that government is so deeply um, embedded with that, that industry and, and reliant on the growth and the tax revenues that it was generating that it couldn't afford to kill the golden goose but also a sort of ideational climate that had emerged from the 1980s onwards in which the success of financial services in the city was seen as a national asset and something to be nurtured rather than worried about. So this seemed like a kind of climate in which money in politics and lobbyists didn't have to work that hard to get favorable outcomes. It wasn't obvious that you needed to push very hard on Tony Blair's government to get the kind of policy that would suit those sectors. That was 2016, written slightly before that, of course, 2015, probably. Um, so it's interesting now, I think, to reflect on what's changed since or what perhaps has been revealed since that point about the way in which money works in British politics and exerts influence in important but perhaps different ways from the states, which is what we tend to think about as the kind of acme of political donations and, and money in politics. So I want to think a little bit about... Um, a few things in Britain's kind of systems and our political economy that influence the way money interacts with our politics and, and perhaps create some, some vulnerabilities that are specific to Britain rather than taking somewhere like the States as our template. The first one, and this is something we knew about before 2016, it's not new, is that Britain has a very centralised political system in which executive power rests with a very small number of people. We know this. Um, compared to uh, the Congress and the states, Parliament here has a relatively limited ability to set government's agendas, to influence it, to block legislation and so on. Um, power even within the governing party, it's very concentrated around the Prime Minister and a small number of advisors. This is a long-standing feature of British politics. But it one, it's one that means that if you have money and would like to influence British politics, you're going to concentrate your energies differently not necessarily on parliamentarians, but on the prime minister, on the, the people making waves in the, in the governing party, or perhaps the party that's expected to govern soon. 
um, and to seek influence around agenda setting rather than the legislative process. So this is a much more difficult process to observe. It's behind closed doors, it's behind the scenes. And the way our politics is set up with that very centralized kind of power incentivizes that kind of behavior. <coughs> the second feature, um, which is a sort of post 2016 development, I think, is that since the financial crisis of 2008, and certainly since Brexit, Britain has been in search of a new growth model, the kind of economic model that was working before about 2007 and then blew up with the financial crisis isn't available in the same way anymore. So politics is casting around for a kind of new way of getting the economy going. And this creates a moment in which you're probably seeing a bit of a changing of the guard in terms of business influence, which sectors are going to matter, which companies are in a position to convincingly lobby government on things. Um, for example, the City of London didn't want Brexit, didn't push for it, and it's now dealing with a set of politicians in a post-Brexit environment who have different interests to them. So the kind of cosy equilibrium that we were writing about in 2016, particularly between finance and government in this country, has broken up to a certain extent. And that creates a kind of instability right now in who is having influence and what they might be trying to do with it. So there's a kind of moment perhaps of opportunity for new donors and maybe incentives for the old donors to work a bit harder to, to kind of press uh, issues that might have gone through more comfortably before. Um, the third thing I think is important to, to think about is the amounts of money involved, um, which are vastly smaller in the UK than the US context. Joe Biden raised and spent a billion dollars to win the presidency. We're talking you know, tens of millions in the, in the UK to get through a general election campaign. It's a, a completely different order. And it's tempting to think that that means we don't share the kind of American um, exposure to big money and the problem that creates, but actually it's a sort of different set of uh, vulnerabilities that come with that. If you have a system where donations are smaller and fewer, um, then the, the influence of the very richest corporations is probably less. It's harder for them to, to kind of rule the roost in the same way. What you have is a, a cast of uh, smaller donors. This is a poker table at which more people can afford to buy in. So you're probably going to get more idiosyncratic individual donors, more eccentric characters, whose interests are probably quite a lot less transparent. Now, obviously, kind of big donations from a corporation, Shell, Goldman Sachs, whoever, create their own problems and have certain kinds of influence in the policymaking process, but their interests are somewhat predictable. We know what Shell want, we know what Goldman Sachs want. If it's an individual, can we get up with 10 million pounds here and there, 250,000 pounds here and there for the Conservative Party, it's quite often less obvious why they've done it, what they're interested in, what they're saying to their party contacts behind the scenes. So an ecosystem in which small individual donors are a bigger part of the picture is a less stable one in terms of predicting the kind of policy that might come out of that system. And that's worth thinking about. Small donors doesn't necessarily mean a smaller problem with money in politics. And the final one, and this is a bit more speculative, um, but it's worth thinking about what, if you're donating money to a political system, you're, you're trying to achieve. What are you trying to influence? Where is that influence supposed to come through? Um, we've already talked a little bit about agenda setting, the idea that if you can steer the governing party towards favourable ideas, then that's, that's a bigger part of the game necessarily than influencing a legislative process. Legislation isn't necessarily the game here. Our parliament's been shut down for leadership contests for half of the last year. <laughs> legislation isn't it. Um, but what doesn't stop is uh, public service provision, which in Britain we know, compared with a lot of other countries, is quite heavily achieved through outsourcing and private contracts. So a big part of what government is for now is to, to hold the key on these very valuable contracts that, that, that are dispersed through the private sector. 
I have, Brett Christopher's estimates this at about three, pushing 300 million pounds in the year 2017-18. So it's significant money. Um, so in a system in which you can afford to buy, in, buy a place at the table and have something to do with politics, it's interesting, I would suggest, no more than interesting, it's a hypothesis, more than a finding, um, but interesting to think about how that um, influences the relationship between government and business and between the civil service and business and the kind of checks and balances that are needed in a system that looks like that. So I think that's, that's enough for now, but my point is to think about this, not just in terms of individual donations and individuals, but in terms of systems and the kinds of vulnerabilities they create. And Britain, I think with its combination of quite significant public, uh, private funding for political parties, um, its centralized power, and it's quite significant entanglement between government service delivery and private sector organizations has some specific vulnerabilities that look a bit different here to elsewhere. Hey, thanks. We have time for some questions. So we will take questions from the audience. There will be a mic roaming around and I will pick people according to no particular order. My eyesight isn't very good. Uh, wave at me if you want to ask a question and I will try and uh, fit in as many uh, as I can. Also, we have a Q&A function, is it, for those on Zoom? So I think I've misled you by suggesting you put things in the chat earlier on, but uh, I think we want you to use the Q&A function. So if you have a question and you're on Zoom, please put it in the Q&A and it will be communicated to me. So hands up. Um, we'll probably bunch a few questions together and deal with them. And I will try and allocate people to respond rather than everybody answering every single question. Yeah, please go ahead. And if you can maybe say if you're an LSE student or who you are. Yeah. Um, so good evening, everyone. I'm not an LSE student. I'm a dual degree student from UCL in Sciences Po. Uh -huh. uh, first of all, thank you. That was very interesting. Uh, I don't remember which one of you mentioned the fact that some countries have a state-funded uh, uh, party system. Um, so I apologize, I don't remember, but uh, I think um, you mentioned that it does have some disadvantages. I was wondering which countries have a state-funded party system and uh, what were the disadvantages of uh, such a system? So thank you. Great, thank you very much. I guess we can probably deal with that. Um, we'll take, maybe take a couple more if we have. Hi, so um, excuse my voice, I'm always always sound terrible on these things um but yeah fascinating talks from all of you um as some of you know um i'm really really interested in this uh, this is what my phd is on um so it's really great to kind of actually see people talking about this because there's not an awful lot in my opinion uh, there should be much more research into this kind of thing because it's it's kind of fundamental pillar of democracy right as you were saying, if donations become so uneven, then political influence becomes uneven. And this is the kind of uh, strand I'm getting on, uh, on with when I come to my question, which I'll get to eventually. But um, <laughs> So your final talk there saying about how government in this country, a lot of the decision making is around, you know, giving out contracts and these kind of having influence through through those channels. Just wondering whether you'd looked into or had considered looking into the, um, you know, the VIP lane, the, the COVID contracts, uh, sort of in times of crisis, when all of these checks and balances are, you know, temporarily pushed aside. Looking at those groups that I think is really interesting. Um, 
is there any link or scope to look in that area? Thanks. Great, thanks. I think maybe we'll have uh, one more in this round. Um, gentleman there at the back, a bit further up. Thank you very much once again for your talk. Um, so I'm a first year student at LSE and coincidentally, I've just written an essay on like just a first year essay on interest groups on like if they're good for democracy or not, et cetera. And one of the things I said, I've probably oversimplified it a lot, but I was saying they're bad for democracy. And one of the reasons why is obviously um, it's just putting the needs of like the wealthy above the average citizen. Um, but my question is, there's a lot of citizens right now that don't really think their vote matters that much. I mean, obviously, they don't even want to vote sometimes or they're just dissuaded from voting in the first place. And then when they hear things like, you know, as you were mentioning, some of the companies in America donating like millions, just hundreds of millions of dollars, they're going to be dissuaded even more to actually want to vote because they're seeing all oh, these companies. They're so much more important than us. So like, how can we try and motivate these citizens into like wanting to vote despite uh, seeing these companies just having so much more influence and power compared to them. Thank you. Fantastic. Thanks. Okay, that's enough to be going on with for, for a moment or two. Stuart, you want to go first with the state funding? I can maybe say something about that too. Yeah, I'll um, happily speak about that. So thanks for the questions. Um, on state funding, um, I mean, it's, it's most of northern or northwestern Europe has state funding, um, particularly Scandinavian countries, uh, Germany, Netherlands, Belgium, etc. It's very, very common. It doesn't mean they ban private donations, although in some cases they do. So in some cases, private funding by uh, companies or trade unions, indeed, is, uh, is sometimes banned. Um, sometimes there's donation limits. So it's a pretty common system across most of Western Europe. Um, I mean, the advantages are it should, in theory, be cleaner. Um, and I'll come on to another possible advantage in a moment. The disadvantage, I think, um, which is what the question was about, is I think it can make political parties a bit lazy. Um, and if we want political parties to, to be, as they should be in a democracy, they really should be the link between civil society and the political system institutionally. So they should be taking you know, civil society forces, uh, wishes, demands, et cetera, building that into issues and then bringing that into the political system. But if you don't really need to go to civil society for money, then you're probably not going to do that. So there, I think there can be an issue of kind of dependency on the state, which you do, but there's ways to work against that. Um, and actually that links to the, um, the final question in that uh, little set. And um, I tell you what, I wish my students would turn up at public events <laughs> and tell me about their essay that they just <laughs> written, um, but they don't. Um, but anyway, I'll go back and tell them that they should. Um, so um, one thing we can do if we design um, funding of political parties smartly, and it does really mean state funding, um, is you can pay political parties a small amount per vote that they attract. Yeah. So if the political party knows it's going to get whatever it is, pound, five pounds, for every vote that they actually get in the election, then that pushes them to go out and campaign. Yeah. Um, and then it gets that, you know, link going properly with civil society. Um, we know that campaigning does increase turnout. I mean, in this country, it would mean that you would actually get campaigns in safe seats, which we don't really. So it would have all kinds of potential advantages. So we can think about our funding mechanisms in relation to that. And, and just finally, I said, I'm just going to agree with Will. Yes, this is under-researched, this topic. And um, if there's any hedge funds out there that want to fund my research, uh, <laughs> just get in touch, because that would be great. Fantastic. Thanks, Stuart. Um, Kate, maybe the, one of those at least was directed, I think, at your comments. 
Yeah, I mean, I can't speak to the specific issue around the VIP lanes in COVID, but it's certainly an interesting example of the kind of ways in which political connections and policy came together in really striking ways. Put it no more strongly than that. Um, but my point is a sort of broader one about saying, well, the kind of influence that money can have in your politics depends in large part on kind of what the shape of government activity looks like, and that's not the same everywhere. So in the United States, for example, there are lots of opportunities to influence legislative processes. Committee appointments are very important. Congressional committees are far more um, instrumentally important than, for example, our select committees, which are basically scrutiny bodies. So there are, there are more different places in the US political system in which um, influence can come to bear and you can put some pressure on the system if you can afford to do so. In the UK, it's, it's not clear that so many of those opportunities exist around Parliament, for example, but the opportunities are around capturing the few minds that matter at any given time in any particular administration. And increasingly, I think, um, getting, getting in with the kind of procurement processes and, and government activity on that side. And that's where checks and balances in terms of um, the civil service matter very much. This is a subject close to my heart because full disclosure, I was a civil servant before I did this. Um, and, and in a context where the civil service has had a rough few years and, and been um, significantly shrunk, at least in central government, um, there's reason to worry about whether those checks are functioning as they should. I put it that way. I mean, I would add something on the issue of state funding. I mean, in Europe, it's certainly the dominant model is for the government largely to pay subsidies to political parties, usually in terms of some uh, in line with the voting power, their represent, uh, representation in the institutions or the number of votes they get and so on and so on. That's, that's a common model. I mean, it does have the virtue of evening out the, the playing field. And the disadvantage is it potentially isolates political parties from, from civil society. But has to be said that there are that I've I spent a lot of my earlier career looking at the case of Southern Europe, and I found that in Italy, for example, which had the most generous state party funding uh, in in Europe around the early 1990s, was also possibly the most corrupt political system in Europe at, at, at the same time. And there was there were massive scandals involving eye-watering amounts of money being funneled to political parties. Uh, in exchange for, for, for various policy favours. So, of course, then there was a lot of pressure in Italy to abolish state party funding with the argument that this would reduce corruption. I think Alberto might agree with me that the jury is out on whether that, that has, been, has been a success. So I think, you know, there, there is no hard and fast rule that a particular model will lead to particular outcomes. There's lots else going on in a political system that might determine the impact of different patterns of funding. Um, let's have another round. Uh, yeah, so I have a few hands up. I guess there might be some questions on Zoom as well. Um, so we'll take one question here, then the gentleman over there, and then the gentleman over there. Yeah, so if you, if you wait for the, the mic, then we'll be able to hear you. And maybe just give us a brief introduction of who you are. No need for big detail, but you know, your affiliation and so, yeah. Hi, uh, thank you so much for this informative panel. I'm Aisu, a law student at UCL. Um, I was wondering how well would you say the parliamentary select committees are doing as uh, scrutinizing uh, these donations into uh, political parties in the UK, uh, perhaps the liaison select committee or the standards committee, uh, and what reforms would you suggest so that they can do better? Thank you. 
thank you very much. Yeah, uh, and over here. Um, so let me leave you my question. My question would be why is political, why are political donations still so cheap, even when aggregated um, by donor groups? They frankly seem very low. Um, over the two decades on that slide uh, presented, um, if you disregard the top five uh, donor groups, um, even within the top 10, all of them are around six, seven million pounds. That's roughly the annual revenue of like an 80 uh, employee, small to medium enterprise in the UK, uh, in, in any sort of knowledge economy um, uh, industry. And um, frankly, that to purchase policy to me seems very, very cheap um, because let, let's see um, you purchase policy and a complex financial instrument is now legal to trade. The hourly uh, trading volume for that specific instrument will probably exceed the amount you paid to get that policy in place um, if we accept that these are the prices set. Um, so my question is, why are they so cheap? And if they are so cheap, why are there no more participants uh, crowding out those very few donors who are at the top of the ranking, uh, if you so please? Fantastic question. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, one more, and if we could squeeze another if we have uh, a hand to go up. Hello, hello. Um, a few years ago, um, GlaxoSmithKline were um, fined almost 500 million in China for bribing doctors and hospitals. Um, the question is, is there an indirect system here of corruption that we don't see beyond the political? But the political must obviously know of it, but don't do anything about it. Okay, thank you. And we'll take one more from up there. Thank you. Hi, thank you. So I'm from LSE itself, uh, Department of Geography and Environment. So my question is, like, I could get a sense that you're hinting that uh, there's a time for the next set of uh, policy changes in election funding or party funding. So what would be your conclusion and set of recommendations to how can the system be better in the context of Britain? Thank you. Thanks very much. Okay. I want to have a go at those. Can you take that last one for a second? Yeah, go ahead. <clears throat> Just very briefly on that last question. Um, what's striking in this context is that even the Electoral Commission itself is pushing for change because it would like to have more powers. And a, a key difference between our system and, and, for example, the American one is that the Electoral Commission has no enforcement powers. It can publish data, it can introduce transparency. But as, as Stuart was saying, this is the product of a set of reforms in the early 2000s when there was a great deal of kind of optimism that transparency would do nearly everything for you and that sunlight would be a disinfectant and, and that the sort of political market would self-correct and, and solve a lot of these problems. And I think we've, we've learned that's not necessarily the case. So, but as it stands, that system um, doesn't confer any enforcement powers on the Electoral Commission, only the police, which it means you end up with this very high threshold for things being taken any further. Um, so that would be one place you could look. Alberto, any thoughts on why our politicians are so cheap? Yeah, that's a very good question. So one of the most famous uh, articles about this in the US is called Why There Is So Little Money in US Politics. So this is a very common question in the literature. I think it boils down to the motivations for the donation itself, right? So why people donate to politics. And in the United States, one argument is that many people donate to, to politics for a sort of ideological consumption rationale. This is probably very different in the United Kingdom, where you know, like there are many less donations, and uh, there, I think, 
more easily linked to some sort of uh, policy influence uh, seeking, right? Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's, I think, no definitive answer about why politicians are so cheap. Uh, and also, this is connected to the trade-off between a public system uh, and, uh, you know, a system in which private donations from individuals and companies uh, exist. Uh, again, it's very difficult to, to give a, a good answer to this. Uh, one book that I would suggest is a recent uh, Julia Cagé's uh, The Price of Democracy, that gives some sort of uh, uh, overview of, of this problem in uh, Western democracies. Uh, and one thing that she suggested in the book is so some sort of democracy vouchers, right? That would somehow solve or partially solve the issue of politicians being cheap. Every citizen might donate this voucher that is public money to the parties that of, of his or her choice. Again, this is one of many potential solutions. One thing we could say is that, uh, you know, both the UK and the US system as they are, don't work. <laughs> this is something easy to say. The solutions is more difficult as usual. Yeah. Yeah, the great questions again. So thank you. Um, I mean, the, the first question was actually about select committees, but others have, have broadened that out. And I think that's important um, because there are a range of bodies that should be and do scrutinize party finance and comment on it and try and make sense of it and so on. Um, I mean, there's a, a, a book I really like. It's absolutely huge by John Keane about the kind of history of democracy. And he talks about the period we're now in being one of monitory democracy. So monitoring, we've got all these monetary bodies that are, are trying to hold politicians, governments, et cetera, account. And I think that's really important. Now, the, the thing is with data like this, um, and these electoral commission records, what's kind of meant to happen is we're meant to have these sort of armies of citizens who are trawling through it and following the money and journalists are meant to be doing it. And this is all meant to be out in the public domain. But, and as we saw from one example I gave, you know, even journalists, even journalists, um, um, they get it wrong, right? They get the wrong guy and think it's a rock star when it's actually a Northern <laughs> Irish industrialist. Um, so there's a, um, there is a problem with this. It's not easy to use this data. Um, it's not straightforward. Um, some of you will have seen um, this stuff in the last few weeks, the Westminster accounts, where I think very usefully, um, two media organizations have taken some other registers, um, which only previously existed as basically PDFs and have made it into a searchable website. Um, again, it's great, but there's a lot of really misconstrued, misconstrued analysis out there with people trying to follow the money and reaching the long, wrong conclusions. So we have to be careful. It does take some skill and I'm, I'm not sure we're there yet with this great vision. Um, and I think there's a lot more to do. Um, on uh, the question about are politicians too cheap and our political parties too cheap, I think it's great. And I think um, in many ways, yes, they are. I mean, there's been some great stuff in, done in the past on why big companies were not donating to the conservatives, right? So the conservatives were getting, say in the 60s, 70s, most of their money from these big 
publicly quoted companies, but the vast majority of uh, large companies registered in Britain and on the stock exchange were not donating anything at all. Um, so the question is, well, why weren't they given anything? Um, and the ones who were, I mean, I think the most plausible explanation I've seen is actually they were companies who feared nationalization under Labour. So they were giving money to the Conservatives to try and try and stop that happening. Um, so I think the motivations of donors and non-donors is absolutely fascinating, and I don't think we understand it nearly enough. Um, on reforms, um, so I think, first, it's my personal view, um, but what I'd like to see is a donation cap. I'd like to see a limit on how much any one individual or organization can give in any given year. We almost got there a couple of times. We've had the reviews that reached that conclusion. It wasn't implemented. Um, we can argue forever about what that limit should be. Um, I think if you do that, you do need to phase in state funding to make up the difference. And I think there's good things we can do with that state funding. The other thing I would do is reduce the general uh, election expenditure cap to bring it down a bit more, what parties can spend in general elections. And I would put up the limit for what candidates can spend in constituencies, because that's really, really low. And actually what I'd like to see is candidates in constituencies spending a lot more money at election time, um, especially in safe seats. And we need to find a reason why they would want to spend money in a safe seat, um, because that does push up turnout and it makes it feel like an election is happening. So there's lots of things we can do. And, you know, there's I can give you like multiple reports now, which uh, which recommend these things. So, you know, we've got lots of blueprints. Um, we just need politicians to get serious about it. And we do need cross party consensus, ideally. Thanks, Stuart. Um... I mean, I, this is an intriguing question, and there are multiple readings as to why there is so little money in politics. One of them is quite optimistic, which would be that it's harder than you might think to corrupt the political system. Um, if it was easy to corrupt the political system, there are all kinds of things that wealthy people might want, which would give them a return. Um, and so maybe it's not as straightforward as we imagine to just write out a check and for that thing to happen. There are plenty of examples of that happening, especially in the United States. It's much better documented. They have great transparency. It's sort of accepted that rich people can buy their way into, into politics. And, and, and at least that, that culture means that we have a bit more uh, data about, about how that actually plays out. I mean, the more um, pessimistic answer would be because politicians uh, really don't need much to be able to <laughs> subvert the will of the people in favor of some some donors' interests, and 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 therefore, you know, they they you know the market rate is 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 very low. That would be a much more pessimistic kind of uh, kind of interpretation. Um, I mean, in the end, I suppose one one final point is that one of the virtues of a a, a kind of state funding system, if it's well organized, would be that it it allows a kind of support for political party organizations to be present in people's lives rather than just at election time. I mean, we've seen from the data Alberto presented that a lot of this money comes in when there's an election in the offing. It's not really about sustaining vibrant party organizations which can actually connect with people in, in, a, you know, in, a, in a deep way and in, and in a long, long lasting way, the, it, which in some ideally, idealized views of uh, of, of democracy is what's supposed to happen, that parties should be present, that you should go to your local conservative club. In my hometown, a very conservative voting town, conservative club had the best snooker tables. My dad was always 
very torn by the desire to place snooker in the Conservative club and his hatred of the Conservative government at that time. He ended up playing snooker in the Catholic club, despite not being a Catholic. He had no problem with that. But anyway, I've noticed in recent visits, the visit uh, uh, family, that the Conservative club is now called the C club, the letter C, which I found very, there's a kind of rebranding going on there, which I'm not sure really what it says, but if I were a Conservative politician, I would be a bit concerned. Anyway, um, maybe we should go to uh, Zoom. Um, so question from Elodie Owen, A-level student in Brighton. Would you say that short money is justified considering it is paid for by the public who may not support the party? Elaine, LSE alum from Gloucester says, you might have touched on this a little bit, but what one thing would most significantly improve the current state of affairs? And question from Hesham Ahmed in Yemen. To what extent will the donations from international companies in Britain affect the political parties and forces during the near future? Fantastic. Thanks very much. Who wants to have a go at those? I'm happy to. Yeah, go on, Stuart. <laughs> um, so short money, for those um, who might not be familiar with that term, um, that's money paid to opposition parties in the House of Commons. So it's one form of state funding. So it only goes to the opposition parties. Um, the Conservatives were highly dependent on that when they were out of office in those first years of, of New Labour. Um, there's also something called Cranbourne money in the House of Lords, which is a bit less generous, similar scheme in, scheme in the Scottish Parliament and so on. Um, I think it is justified um, because I think we want opposition parties to be able to do their job. We want them to be able to do research, have researchers, be informed on policy. There's also policy development grants from the Electoral Commission, which helps some of that. Um, so I think it's justified and it, it fulfills an important democratic function. Um, and uh, I think we're better off for it. Um, international donations, um, well, we shouldn't have any. <laughs> um, they should be outlawed. Um, that said, um, they clearly get through in one way or another. And one of the things we sometimes don't know is the chain that the money has been through. I mean, we know there's been money from Russia come into British politics, mostly to the Conservative Party. Um, and we know it's gone down a chain, but we can't always see in the black boxes along that chain. Um, Michael Ashcroft, who was basically funding the Conservative Party at one point when they were in real financial trouble, um, you know, he's based in Belize and a lot of the money was flowing through um, companies registered in, in Belize. But, you know, we couldn't get at the detail. The Electoral Commission couldn't get the detail. So um, so it's kind of there swirling around, but it's hard to get at. But in theory, it shouldn't uh, be there. Uh, what one thing would improve the situation? I'm only allowed one. Um, <laughs> um, I, actually, I do really like the idea, and I've said it twice already, so I'll say it again, um, that political parties would get state funding in return for actually getting people to vote for them. I think that would be a good thing for various reasons. I think I, my one thing would be um, a, a tightening up of the rules outside election campaigns. I think a lot of the kind of logic of the way party spending is regulated in particular is is on the assumption that most of the action is happening within those six weeks or so running up to a general election. And that just is the tip of the iceberg of what's going on in terms of the complicated relationship between money and politics. So something that broadens the lens beyond just, you know, how many party political broadcasts you can pay for or whatever, to the kind of broader relationship between money and politics outside election time, which is where a lot of the action is. 
any thoughts? Uh, well, if I had to design a system, one thing I would probably uh, go uh, with a with a cap and with some sort of matching funds. So some sort of uh, you know like state funding that matches the donations from from, from the private uh, individuals or companies, so that you know this. There is some sort of in incentive, as Stuart was saying, from uh, individuals and companies to donate, but there is also state funding uh, substantially. I think um, we need to also think about what parties are actually spending money on. Um, because, I mean, there are some things that we would like the parties to do more of. <laughs> we would probably like them to do more local campaigning, for example. We would probably like them to have stronger party organizations at the local level to try and make that 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 connection we probably don't want them to be spending a huge amount of money on billboards although i think that in some ways is a thing of the past because it's these days you put up one billboard take a picture of it and tweet it out or have it in the newspaper or have a managed to engineer a tv broadcast in, interview in front of it and it, it, you save save an awful lot of money i think we should be relieved that we don't have the kind of political advertising you see uh, on, on television in the United States. We've been spurred, we've dodged that particular bullet, which I think has all kinds of baleful consequences. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, you know, capping the kind of spending that we don't want, but possibly going the other way and actually subsidizing and encouraging the kind of spending we do want would be, would be one way in. Just one final point really on the international dimension. I don't think there should be, I mean, I think it's, it's fair enough that we should... Uh, we should curtail um, the, this foreign money in politics. One of the problems though, is that it's so much of what appears and we don't really know all that much about it, but what appears to be an issue in the way funding works in, in, in Britain and Stuart was just alluding to this, is the way in which money in the UK is internationally connected through the web of kind of offshore jurisdictions in particular. Um, of which I guess Belize probably counts as one. Um, and, and that actually, there's, there's a peculiar kind of globalization of the British wealthy elite, which has ended up spilling over into to politics. Um, I was amazed to find out that the current Tory party treasurer used to be a minister in the Mubarak administration in Egypt, um, which I, I still can't quite get my head around that. Um, I think that's fairly unique in Europe. I can't imagine that happening anywhere else. But it does kind of speak to, in some ways, a permeability <laughs> to, to foreign influences, which in other arenas we would probably feel quite positive about. But when it comes to um, flows of money into politics, it does kind of make you think a little bit. Um, so, you know, I think that the, these are um, questions about you know, things that we need to get a grip of. And although in some ways the legislation that was developed, usually most of it a couple of decades ago to deal with the perceived problems has now been kind of outpaced by the ways in which, uh, you know, politicians have been able to dodge their way around these rules. And we probably need an updating to, to try and ensure that the original spirit of these, these measures uh, uh, is, is still, you know, implemented. Um, I think we're just about running out of time. It's five to seven. Is there any one final question somebody is desperate to ask? Yes, okay. There are two final questions. Okay, make them super snappy. 
Um, yes, there's one there uh, on these two rows. Sorry. Hi, I'm a sixth form student. My question is quite vague and it's kind of just to what extent do you believe that political donations can actually influence the agenda of political parties? Because, you know, a lot of like Labour's donations are trade unions, a lot of the Conservatives are businesses, which are the groups they've traditionally been known to support. So do those donations actually influence the agenda that those parties implement or do they just fund politicians? fancy lifestyles like their holidays and their eyebrows because clearly the amount of money that we've seen coming to these parties is a lot higher than what's actually spent on elections and on political change okay another one um do you think that if you um increase the limits on the like donations um i don't know if you increased state funding for political parties but across the board do you think that would increase the success of more minor parties because mm. they are very disadvantaged by the current yeah. donations. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Um, fi final comments from the panel. Um, on, on your question about whether these donations actually change much, in terms of swinging things between one party or another, probably not as much as you might think, although the fact that donors do migrate from Conservatives to Labour when it looks like the tide is turning says they must think there's something, go something worth doing there. But my, my sense is that because of the nature of our political system, and it's, it's broadly speaking a two-party system um, with very concentrated power within those parties with the leadership, what um, donors can potentially do is try and influence leadership contests, try and capture and embed certain ideas within those two parties. So setting the agenda for the Conservatives or for Labour for 10 years at a time is a, is a prize worth worth spending some money on um, because the nature of our system is that if you capture those few minds that are making the big decisions you've kind of got the ball game um, so donors who can embed their ideologies embed their particular preferences to the point that that becomes the kind of taken for granted position of a party for a period of time that's a successful donation strategy and I think you do see evidence of that in Britain. So um, the um, the influence of donation, I mean, it's fascinating because it's so hard to pin down. It really, really is so hard to pin down. I mean, my kind of vague impressionistic sense is if you really want to influence policy, um, you might be better off giving your millions to a think tank that's close to a political party. Um, so at one point for the Conservatives, that would have been policy exchange. And one point for Labour, that would have been the Institute for Public Policy Research. That's probably a, a, a more effective route. I mean, it is just really, really hard to say. Um, I mean, we do have these things like the Conservatives in particular, um, they have these various kind of donor clubs and it's kind of tiered. And the more money you give, the more access you get to politicians and the more senior those politicians are. So if you, if you give absolutely loads, you can have quite regular meetings with very senior ministers. Whether that really results in influence is very hard to say, but people are paying for it. Um, but we, you know, we can't know what's going on. There aren't minutes of those meetings or anything like that. Um, I mean, I think this comes back to this issue of who's donating, who isn't, why are they donating? I, mean, I think it's a real collective action problem, actually, because actually what you want is somebody else to give their money to the political party so you don't have to, right? Um, so I think very often if we trawl through 
um, what's very often are the, are the, the ties between people who went to school with David Cameron was actually a pretty good predictor of who was giving money to the, the Conservatives at that time, for instance. Um, so it, it's difficult and it's, it's complicated. Smaller parties. So look, if we want to encourage smaller parties to do well, and you know, people often think, yes, yes, I do want that. I, I really like the idea of smaller parties doing well. Uh, do just remember that also means parties you don't like. Yeah. Um, so if you like the Greens, it would have also meant UKIP or, you know, later on Brexit Party or, or Reform or whatever. So always bear that in mind. Um, and it would probably need PR alongside it. So just dumping more money on political parties under our current electoral system, it's not going to help massively. So I think we'd need to look at electoral reform at the same time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and when you asked the question about recommendations, the first thing that came into my mind was actually just PR. And we'll, we'll deal with the money later, but uh, um, I, I think it, I've, I've long thought that that's actually the real problem with our political system, but that would be for another panel debate, I guess. Um, thanks so much for, for showing up and, and asking such uh, in, intriguing questions. Thanks to those of you who joined online for the same, and I uh, hope you got something from, from this and, uh, and enjoyed it. And I'd like to thank my fellow panelists for turning out in this miserable January evening and, and livening us up with, uh, with these insights. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.